yet this first candle is called the candle of hope. It's called the candle of hope because there's hope in the fact that our way doesn't have to be it. There's hope in the fact that I don't have to save myself because I'm really bad at saving myself. I am. Every time I try, I mess it up. I mess it up for myself and for other people. There is hope that God did not leave us in our darkness, but instead brings light in His Son, Jesus Christ. And so I'm just going to, I'm actually going to, I'm going to read starting at 36. Um, Jesus says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away so will be the, the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left, let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. This is the word of the Lord. Well, that's kind of fun, isn't it? <laughs> um, I don't know about you. I, do you remember those Left Behind books? Um, I, I basically grew up with them. I was like eight years old when the first one came out. Um, and then it went up through 2007, so I was like a sophomore in college. Um, so what's that, like 19 going on 12? Is that a sophomore in college? Um, and they took that much time, so, you know, 8, 10 years, something like that, uh, to get out these 16 novels. And then there was the kids series, right? You're, I mean, you remember what those books are about, that kind of every believer in the world gets raptured, and then you have these seven years of tribulation, and, and there's this group that gets left behind, but they somehow stumble across the truth, and so they form what they call the Trib Force, um, and it's, it's, it's very like 1995 because they don't have like cell phones and stuff. They've got like satellite phones that fit into like, you know, a holster on the side of their pants. And they're all, <laughs> they're like geared up and they got Hummers and all this stuff. Um, and they're living this sort of post-rapture life under the one world government of, of Nikolai Carpathia. Um, and, it, you know, at the time, it was really this kind of phenomenon in the Christian world, this they were everywhere, and everybody was reading them, and I was reading them and into them. And it, because it was really this like drama, this sort of action story with this backing of Ezekiel and John, John's revelation. And honestly, there are all kinds of problems <laughs> with that sort of thing. Um, but let me, the one problem uh, that's standing out to me right now as I kind of remember back is that it makes it out to seem like the real adventure 
is those who get left behind. Like, it makes it out to seem like they're actually better off because they didn't get raptured, and now they get to live the action movie that we all wanted to live anyway. They all get to be like Bruce Willis, except they know that Jesus is coming back in seven years. And if we can just survive these seven years, then we'll finally be as we were meant to be. But the problem is that there's just not, honestly, there's not a lot of vision for what's on the other side of that. There's not a lot of vision for what Jesus' coming actually means, like the real substance that we're looking forward to. Now compare that, there are other stories, there are good storytellers out there. There's the one that always jumps out to me, I think we read it when we were in the, with Emmaus, we were in the hospital for like five days because Andrew had to be induced and all this stuff. And so we had books and I just read the last, was it the last battle, right? I just read C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle like out loud because um, she's not feeling great. And so, <laughs> and you can only watch so much Price is Right. Um, and so we're reading, and, and that story has such a, it's got such a much more rich sort of vision of what it is to come to the other side of things. The value is not on the adventure that's here and now, but instead they have this line when the characters of the, of, in, in the Chronicles of Narnia, they get through and they get into like Aslan's place, kind of that far country he calls it. And, and the words that they use, they say further up and further in. And they keep calling out to one another further up and further in. And they're, they're running and they're running and they're running and they don't get tired. They're in these like redeemed, resurrected bodies and they keep running further up and further in to the mountains of God, these ever exceeding and expanding glories that God is unfolding before them. The adventure, looking back, is that the life that they lived before that they thought was so big and so important and so wonderful, it's like they were standing still. What they discover is that it's the life of God that has all goodness and all richness. And anything that seemed dramatic or adventurous in this old life is really just the shadow of the life that is to come. Or I think about, well, there are other stories, but I, I, I guess I probably shouldn't go into all of those. <laughs> The truth is, well, another C.S. Lewis story. Friday, I was over at, um, not this last Friday, the one before, I'm over watching Peter at, at Al and Katie's house, and I um, picked up The Great Divorce, <laughs> which is another C.S. Lewis book. That's a great book. If you haven't read The Great Divorce, it's a phenomenal, I mean, it's only like 100 pages. And it's, it's like one of the best stories, one of the best imaginations of what heaven is really like. And, and what you find in there, the first 30 or 40 pages, he, he is really describing hell. Except it's not hell with like fire and pokers and, you know, all of this like, we're really going to try to scare you out of hell. Do you know what hell is in the book, The Great Divorce? It's just depressing. Like, it's just like, it's a gray, it's like outside right now, except in England. So it's just like that all the time, you know? Like, it's, it's just sort of like always sort of like dreary and cold, and you're in this big city that you can never really find the end of. It's just empty house upon empty house, and they just sort of wander around, not knowing 
what to do. And so people kind of try to get to a book club together or they try to get some people to gather for dinner on Tuesday nights. And it seems fine for a minute, but then everybody starts fighting because it's hell and they all just move out farther and farther from each other. So everybody is just depressed and lonely because they're getting everything that they actually want, believe it or not. And it turns out we don't actually want very good stuff for ourselves. <laughs> we want some pretty depressing stuff in this life. And that, I think, is a clearer picture of what hell will be like. We, in this world, long for the drama we have a way of reading passages like Matthew 24, and we kind of hope, well, maybe Jesus will come back during my time. <laughs> I remember in 2011, I was on my way from seminary to the summer internship, and it was May 21st, 2011. I don't know if you remember that. That was Brother Harold Camping was on the rise again. He was claiming again, Jesus is going to come on, on May 21st, 2011. And I was driving up Highway 395. The Sierras were high. The Inyo Mountains are high on the other side. I'm like, man, this is a great place to watch this happen if it does happen. <laughs> but it didn't. <laughs> and I didn't really think it would. Because every prediction so far of the second coming of Christ has been wrong. And it's not just the 20th century. It used to happen back in the 1800s. In fact, there are entire Christian denominations whose founding moment was a time called the Great Disappointment when they got all these people together and said, Jesus is coming back on this day in 1843 or whatever it was. And pretty sure enough, Jesus doesn't come back. <laughs> but we're here, so let's start a church, right? <laughs> and it's, it's just kind of mind-boggling that we continue to get into this, this sort of cycle of prediction, of looking forward to something. Somebody can sort of rile us up and they can get us to believe and they can get us to donate money and they can kind of get us all focused on this one thing and then it doesn't happen. But misunderstanding the end doesn't begin with 19th and 20th century Americans. Um, the disciples, actually, are the ones who started it. <laughs> In Matthew 24, verse 3, they ask Jesus. Jesus has been kind of in the temple, and then he leaves the temple. And as he's leaving the big temple in Jerusalem, he says, not one of these stones will be left on another. Right? He has this kind of prophetic pronouncement. And so they turn to him, and they say, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, so he sort of went down. Um, he goes out of Jerusalem. He goes down into the Kidron Valley, and then he goes up onto the Mount of Olives, which is this mountain that looks at Jerusalem, right? So there's two mountains, they look at each other. So he's sitting on the Mount of Olives, looking over at Jerusalem, and his disciples say to him, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, we can't imagine how big, how beautiful, how impressive the temple in Jerusalem was. It was as big as the state capitol complex downtown that covers from 10th to 15th and, and L to N, right? It's like 10 square blocks. And it wasn't a park. It was, that was all a building, right? It made our state capitol look like just a corny little apartment building on the side. And it was so impressive. It had taken Herod 
10 years to build this thing with all of the resources that he could gather and muster. He had built up on top of the temple that the Israelites had built when they came back from Babylon. And he expanded it. And, and they even put stuff on the outside. They covered it in gold leaf and they hung shields and all kinds of stuff. So when you're walking up to Jerusalem, if the sun hit it right, the temple would like blind you because it was shiny, right? The light would bounce off of this thing. So it's sitting on top of this mountain. It's this glorious building. It's full day and night with people coming to worship God and bringing their sacrifices, bringing everything that they can to God. And yet Jesus says, it's coming down. Not one stone will be left on another. And I'm sure you've heard, I'm sure you know that the stones that he's talking about were not like the cinder blocks in our walls. And they weren't like, you know, little brick. The stones he's talking about were like 10 by 15 feet. They were massive, multiple ton individual stones. And the Jews could not imagine that this building would be torn down. But what, what is it that happens is the disciples hear Jesus' prophecy and like somebody who, doesn't, who looks through a telescope and doesn't know what they're looking at, they see two events as one. Right, So I don't know if you've ever looked through binoculars or a telescope and you see two mountains off in the distance. But then as you get closer, you realize, and they kind of look like one mountain, but then as you get closer, you realize, oh, wait, <laughs> these mountains are like 40 miles apart. Right? There's, there's a massive distance between them, but because they kind of come together in the way that you're looking at them from a distance. And so the disciples, as they hear Jesus talk about these things, they assume that it's one event when in fact Jesus is talking about multiple events. What is it that they put together? They say, tell us when these things will be, that is the destruction of the temple, and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age, right? So the one is the temple, the, one, the other is what's the sign of your coming and the end of the age. What Jesus does and what he sees clearly is that the temple is going to fall. Um, Cody and I have often said it, you know, but a prophet is not so much one who sees the future, like somebody who gets the newspaper a couple of days early. It's not so much one who can look out and see exactly what's going to happen in history as much as it is one who sees the truth. And because they see the truth, certain things become inevitable, right? So Jesus sees truly because Jesus' eyes are clear and his heart is clear and he has a deep and perfect connection with the Father. He sees truly the hearts of those who are running the temple and the hearts of those who are running the political system of the day, the Romans, and the hearts of those in his nation of Israel who, it turns out, are going to revolt, <laughs> And they're going to revolt again and again and again. And they revolt so often that Rome finally says, I'm sick of this. <laughs> I'm tired of these revolutions. And so Rome comes in and they lay siege to Jerusalem. It's not that different when the Babylonians come in and lay siege to Jerusalem, except the Romans are bigger and badder and stronger at this point in history. And I can tell you the siege was a terrible, terrible thing. 
It lasted years. It lasted years. And the people in Jerusalem are caught, are stuck inside the city. And Titus, the Roman general, he doesn't want to tear down the temple because it's just too beautiful. He, he believes it's actually one of those ancient wonders of the world. But war is war, and eventually he kind of says, I have to do it. And so he takes the temple of Jerusalem, and he does exactly what Jesus said he would do. In 70 AD, about 40 years later, he knocks down every stone of the temple. And he tears it down to a pile of rubble and strews it out across Mount Zion. Until all of the effort and the work that had gone into that is just destroyed along with the hopes of the Israelites. And the people of Israel are scattered. They're scattered into communities in places that become Spain and Russia, parts of Europe. They become the scattered Jewish nation that we know today. But that unique historical tragedy, it gets conflated, it gets mixed up, it gets turned into one thing with the coming of Christ. Because that is such a big deal that the Jews can't imagine that there's going to be more terrible stuff on top of that. But Jesus, in talking about his own second coming and the end of the age, goes back, in fact, to another Old Testament image of judgment. Did you hear it? He recalls Noah and the flood. In Noah's day, he says everybody was living their lives as if nothing terrible was really going to happen. We're just going to do what we're going to do. We're going to marry and we're going to give in marriage. We're going to take in marriage, right? We're going to go steal women from that tribe over there and bring them into our tribe. And we're going to party and we're going to have a good time and we're going to amass as much stuff as we can amass. And who cares about the creator? We are the created ones. And they don't expect what God brings. They let their internal selves slacken and weaken. They let the ears that God has given them be stopped up. They let their eyes get drowsy and close and sleep. And so when Noah warns them to repent and turn, when he preaches the word to them, they have no energy left to turn. And when he builds an enormous boat, to outlast the judgment that's coming, they've got no energy left to change their lives. They're too spiritually asleep. All they can do is laugh. All they can do is say it's a time for celebration, for taking what we can get. It's not a time for discipline and repentance. But the flood does come. And Noah and his family are saved. They're saved because Noah listened to the Lord. But everyone else is lost. They're all swept away. They're all taken from the earth unawares. And this is the image that Christ uses, that people are just living their lives and then all of a sudden they are swept away in judgment. They're in the field. 
and then they're swept away in judgment. They're grinding grain, and then they're taken away in judgment. But the others, like Noah and his family, are left behind to continue to live the story that God has prepared for them. So it's, it's, this is a kind of maybe important point here. <laughs> but it's Noah and the faithful ones who actually get left behind. It's the unfaithful ones who get taken away. I, I don't actually think that this passage supports kind of that, the popular sort of rapture theory that people are sort of taken off of the earth if they're good and they're left behind if they're bad. It, it, the image is actually the other way around. Because in Noah's day, it's, it's those who are unprepared that get swept away, right? It's those who are receiving judgment, who get taken off to their judgment. The wicked, the unaware, the faithless. It's not unlike the firstborn of Israel in Egypt. The ones without the blood on their door, who the angel of death comes and judges in that 10th plague. The others are left behind to enter more deeply into the life of God. Now, it's kind of crazy to talk about this destruction of the temple, uh, which is this huge significant event, and then that there's no place in the New Testament that you can go and you say, Paul tells us the story of, <laughs> of the temple falling. Well, Paul died before the temple fell, but John or someone else. They don't go and they don't tell us that story. We know it from other sources. And I think part of why they don't tell us that story is that the New Testament is a lot more worried about developing the people of God to be the temple of God. In a sense, they're saying that we don't need the temple in order to approach God anymore because we are the people of God. We are those living stones. We, in fact, have Jesus Christ who is God himself. So the temple was there to sort of stand in between, but we now have God himself. And if we need anything to stand in between, God has given us a way to do that through the sacraments and most importantly through his spirit that he poured out on us on Pentecost so that his spirit doesn't have to be poured into the Holy of Holies now and made available through the sacrifices, but his spirit is poured out in us. His spirit is here in the church. And those are the things that begin then to form us in the character of Christ. We are, as Paul says, to put on Christ. Like Jack read, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Because, friends, Christ is coming again. And there will be a day when those who are unprepared are swept off of this earth. And judgment will come. And what Paul wants his people to see and what Jesus wants his disciples to see is, are you going to be ready? Keep watch. Stay awake. Don't be like those who fall asleep because they're too satisfied with themselves and they're too satisfied with, their, with where their spirits are. They're too satisfied with how close they are to God that they just like 
you know, after Thanksgiving dinner, they just lay down and fall asleep on the couch for 14 hours. You wake up and it's practically Christmas. <laughs> and in our culture, that's what we do. We just go from like meal to meal to meal. And then we get uncomfortable, so we go do something else. We go shop on Black Friday, or we go do something else that's just going to ease our sort of uncomfortable soul. But meanwhile, all that discomfort is coming from God. It's a gift from God that we would turn to Him in prayer, in repentance, in hope that we might be different, that we might live our lives differently, that we might come into consistent, the consistent presence of His grace that he offers to us through his church, through the means of grace. You know, instead of worrying about how Christ will come, or even worse, when he will come, we ought to be focused on putting on the character of Christ, which is not found in living the way that Noah's people lived. It's not found in the celebrations of the Christmas season. <laughs> Those things, they turn our attention in on ourselves. Advent, this, this time before Christmas, and, and I promise, I love Christmas. Christmas is my favorite holiday of the year. Like, I mean, theologically, yes, Easter, but like in terms of everything else, like Christmas is just like, this is, I, I get so sick of summer. I'm so glad that winter is here. I'm so glad that it's raining outside, that there's snow in the mountains. Sorry, Alicia. Like, I love this part of the year, okay? But there's such a tendency there's, I had to order a suit for a friend's wedding. <laughs> and I was, I, he wanted me to order it online, so fine, I, I ordered it online. I was sure I ordered the right size. <laughs> and we get home, and I, like, I pull on the pants, and I'm like, oh, this is not even close. Like, this is not, and I don't know if I've changed over the last couple years, <laughs> if I've needed to keep watch or what it is. But that, that happens to us, where all of a sudden we are not the people who we thought we were. And something catches us and it wakes us up and it says we need to be different. And so the church here every year wants to turn us back to this in Advent. It's actually, believe it or not, a time of fasting and preparation for the coming of Christ in the manger. And we'll get to the feasting. There's 12 whole days for that. We'll get to the feasting, but, but I want us to actually be ready to know what it is that we're receiving if we're not willing to fast, if we're not willing to give up some of those things that cause us to just move into a stupor, then we won't even notice when Jesus does come. We'll be so busy with all the activity of the season. I'm not just trying to be a curmudgeon <laughs> or a Scrooge. But if we want the salvation that God offers us in Christ, we have to also submit ourselves to his transformation. Isaiah 2, what Dan read for us this morning, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted above all the hills and then all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And that's a wonderful, beautiful picture that we all love, but it contains in it something that we like to forget, which is confession and submission. 
Whose ways are, is it that we're going to learn on that hill? It's God's ways. The nations are going to put down their own ways and they're going to begin to learn the ways of the God of Jacob. We will have to give up our place on our hill in our nation in order to be judged and brought into the Lord's mountain. We'll have to recognize that our nation and our way are not God's way. But we confess and we place ourselves at the Lord's feet. And this is why Advent's not just a time of preparation by baking or getting the shopping done. It's meant to be a moment where we prepare for the coming Christian year, where we seek a new form of life. And yet this first candle is called the candle of hope. It's called the candle of hope because there's hope in the fact that our way doesn't have to be it. There's hope in the fact that I don't have to save myself because I'm really bad at saving myself. I am. Every time I try, I mess it up. I mess it up for myself and for other people. There is hope that God did not leave us in our darkness, but instead brings light in his son, Jesus Christ. And so we, like an athlete, who continues to practice how to dribble or to shoot free throws, or an artist who continues to go and paint and to write. We do this to keep our skills sharp. We do this to keep watch. We pray. We fast. We, we find ways to lessen ourselves so that God might be made greater. And we don't just do negative actions, right? We don't just take things away. We also do positive actions. We, we give to the poor and we share with those who are in need. We put ourselves into other people's lives, even though our culture says just drive into your garage and shut the door and don't say hi because neighbors are weird, right? We find a way to be involved in each other's lives here in this church and those in the world. This season is about putting ourselves and our desires on the back burner so that we can seek God's desires for ourselves and for our neighbor. Uh, I don't know if you know the story of the real St. Nicholas. <laughs> he was a bishop in a town called Myra in Asia Minor, which today is like Turkey. Um, and there's, there's an old story. There's a lot of kind of cool stories about St. Nicholas. Maybe half of them are true. I don't know. But the one that's probably true and the one that gives us our image of Santa Claus coming down the chimney and dropping off presents is that St. Nicholas, who was a bishop in this town, found out that there was a family in his parish that had three daughters who were going to be sold into prostitution because they couldn't afford to marry them off, right? Daughters are expensive. Um, you have to pay somebody in his day to take them away from you, okay? And so they couldn't afford this bride price. And so St. Nicholas at night walks by and three nights in a row throws in some bags with gold coins in them to the family's house so they can afford the bride price and their daughters are not sold into that terrible state. And I wonder if maybe this Advent, as we prepare for the coming of Christ, we ought to look to become something different than we are today. Rather than being good so that St. Nicholas will bring us something Maybe we ought to seek to become like that saint that loved the poor because they are as valuable as Christ himself. Maybe we ought to seek to become like the Son of Man who was not afraid to come as a poor and vulnerable child. Oh. 
I hope this morning that you can see and know that God has not left us alone in this place. He sent his spirit to be with us. Even in this darkness, God has not abandoned us. He is coming to be with us now if we will open up ourselves to receive him. God wants to fill your life today. He wants to fill this church with his love. He wants that love to overflow in the streets of Rosemont or Rancho Cordova and all the world. He wants the world to know that he offer, all that he offers us is good and hopeful and gracious if we will only receive it. So my question today is, will you receive it? Will you wake up? Will you unstop your ears and rub the muck out of your eyes? Because God is calling you and he loves you and he's given his life for you. And if you will give your life in response, you will discover a life that is better than any you could imagine for yourself. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for bringing us into this place. Thank you that despite the darkness in our life, Lord, that you are the hope that we have. Lord, would you teach us despite a culture that wants to abandon you, that wants to leave us on our own, that wants to teach us other methods to soothe that discomfort in our souls, Lord God, would you teach us to turn to you in all things we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.